to another edition of Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. We are now boarding passengers for the roof and tail section of the aircraft. Please have your ticket out as we watch Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 61, which begins with the waiting ones running down a dune, followed by Max. And it ends with Max being informed that the children are ready to depart. Good Monday morning, Julia. Happy Monday. I was a little concerned about the content, or rather lack thereof, <laughs> of this week. But after actually sitting down, looking through it, I'm a little more confident we'll be able to wring some quality content out of this week. I agree. I was equally concerned that we were just going to be looking at a lot of sand this week. And I had the same outcome as you once I started digging into it. Mm. I think there's lots of little things to talk about. Yeah, I don't like sand. No. It's rough and it's coarse and it gets everywhere. <laughs> we wrapped last week with... A bunch of the kids streaming over the top of a dune and running down the side of it. And that's how we start off this minute, with these kids running down the dune past the camera. Now, when I started looking at this minute, the first thing that came to mind was the behind-the-scenes documentary that we mentioned way, way long ago, the one narrated by Tina Turner. In that documentary, the setup for this scene is one of the portions that they highlighted and it was George Ogilvy surrounded by kids and he was directing them telling them how he wanted them spaced out and how they needed to run within a certain time frame and despite the adage to never work with children and animals because they never pay attention to you I found these kids to be rather well behaved behind the scenes it might be just because the documentary crew was sitting there watching them but they didn't seem overly rowdy they didn't seem disrespectful or constantly distressed Distracted by things, I was rather impressed. Yeah, they genuinely seemed like a good group of kids, which is to be expected. These children were chosen from groups of artistically talented children. Yeah. These are singers and musicians and actors. They have to have some level of discipline to excel in those areas. Right. Plus, I think the number that they were throwing around in that documentary was 1,800 applicants, 1,800 child actors that wanted to get in on this project. Yes. And they were some of the select few. And when we were talking to Adam Skoogle, we learned that they went to workshops or camps for weeks ahead of time to really hone their character and their behavior and their acting for these parts. I think that really comes across, especially when we see the behind the scenes and how George Ogilvy interacts with them and how he directs them. They're not just reading lines off of a script. Mm -hmm. They have delved into the character and they have become the character, which seems like perhaps a better method of acting for kids. It's more of a imagination exercise than reading lines off a script. Yeah. When you think about it, these kids that were just doing a more complicated version of playing pretend 
end, they were the top, let's say, 2-3% when you calculate how much is 50 out of 1,800. That's a pretty steep curve. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty hard mark to hit. Yeah. I particularly enjoyed, in the couple of examples that we got watching George Ogilvy direct the children, I really liked his method of explaining to them why he wanted them to do it mm-hmm. in a certain way, specifically for this scene where all the kids are running down the dune. And rather than just giving them the direction, run down the dune, he had to explain to them that you have to pace yourself and spread out or else you're all going to come down at the same time and you're going to create a traffic jam and you're all going to fall over. Yeah. And they're not going to get their shot. So he taught them how they need to start spread out. Like over on the other side of the dune, they all need to be five, six, seven feet away from each other so that by the time they get over the dune, they're properly spaced out. Everybody has room to run. No one's going to fall over. They're going to get their shot. Yeah, and he reminded them that the shot they're trying to get is not so much of the kids, but of Mel. And so we explained to them, as you come up over the dune, come down and then get out of the way because we need to bring the camera in and get on Mel. Yes. (laughs) So I feel like the kids had a really good understanding of what was going on in this set. Yeah, they did. And the shot came out great. It's a beautiful display of the kids running over the top of the dune. And they did it perfect. They kind of went to either side of the camera They spread out to either side, and you can see Mel at the top of the dune, all silhouetted nice, and it's perfect. Yeah. They did a really good job. And they definitely hit their mark. We only get the kids running for about 12 seconds. Right around 12 seconds, the last kid, which I'm pretty sure is Eddie, gets off the screen, and then it's just Max walking down the dune. Cute thing about Eddie. In the screenplay, it's not just Eddie, it's Eddie and Gus who in the movie it's translated to just Eddie, there is no Gus. In the screenplay, Eddie and Gus, they're the ones who are always hanging around Max. Okay. They were the ones who were playing with Sally Ann while he was still unconscious. In the book, they had removed one of his boots and had painted his toes with the ochre mud. Okay. And they had like decorated him and stuff. And Max initially wasn't going to follow the kids up out of the canyon, but they stopped, turned around, grabbed Max. Okay. So they did keep that from one iteration over to the other. They did. So it's Eddie and Gus who just really like Max and hang around him a lot. Mm. So considering that the kids are gone at the 12 second mark, this shot of Max continues on to about 32 seconds in, which means we spend roughly a third of this minute just watching Max trudge down this dune before he finally comes to a stop, more or less right up against the camera, taking a look at what we have yet to see. Yes. At face value, saying it takes a certain amount of seconds for him to get to the bottom of the dune and make it to the camera, it sounds like a slog. But when you're watching it in the movie as a whole, I think it makes a lot of sense and it has a good effect. Mm. If you've never seen the movie before, you don't know what he's looking at. You don't know this thing that the kids so enthusiastically ran out of the canyon and up over the dune to go to. It slows down that reveal a bit and lets us see it through Max's eyes. Because by the time he gets up to the camera, we get a real good look at his face. He's got an expression of confusion and amazement. I think confusion is a good word for it. Because he's got to convey to the audience that what he's seeing is out of the ordinary. 
I think he, he he does a good job. Mel Gibson does good face work. Yeah. He's got good eye expressions as well. Yeah. He tells a lot through his eyes. Yes. And what he's seeing as we switch perspectives is a crashed airplane. And all of these kids are running up the sand onto the top of this wreck. And as the kids stream up, the camera's moving and we look at the tail section and then Screw Loose pops up on top of the tail <laughs> section. Yes, he does. So what we're looking at here is supposed to be a crashed 747 or rather what's left of it. Yeah, I did something a little bit foolish that I'm chastising myself for. I didn't read this part in the novelization before I prepped for the minutes. Mm. So in the screenplay, it says specifically that it's a 747. So I didn't know that. And I had to go figure out and make a guess at what kind of plane it was. My best guess was a 767. Okay. But I got to give myself credit for getting it close. You were definitely close. Yeah. I got 747 from the MadMaxMovies.com page. And in the interviews in the behind the scenes documentary, Ogilvy specifically mentions that it's a 747. So. Okay. That answers my next question was... Yeah, the screenplay says a 747, but is it actually a 747? Well, it's not actually a plane at all. It's a facade. Well, yeah. So, but, but I get what you were saying. Yeah, it's actually meant to be a 747. Yeah. So the Boeing 747, it's an American wide-body commercial jet airliner and cargo aircraft, often referred to by its original nickname, the Jumbo Jet. Its distinctive hump upper deck along the forward part of the aircraft has made it one of the most recognizable aircraft, and it was the first wide-body airplane produced, manufactured by Boeing's commercial airplane unit in the United States. The 747 was originally envisioned to have 150% greater capacity than the Boeing 707, a common large commercial aircraft in the 1960s. It was first flown commercially in 1970. The 747 held the passenger capacity record for 37 years. The 747 is certainly iconic. For me, whenever I think about big passenger planes, you think about the 747. Mm -hmm. And even if it's not the typical plane that's flown anymore, planes have evolved beyond that, we still think of the 747. So the 747 can accommodate 400 116 passengers in a typical three-class layout, 524 in a typical two-class layout, or its maximum 660 in a high-density one-class configuration. But who wants to fly in a one-class configuration? You might as well just all be in steerage. That's basically what it is. <laughs> yeah. As for the plane that knocked the 747 out of the top spot for passenger capacity, that was the A380 by Airbus. Go over those passenger capacities again. Between 416 and 660, depending on the layout. Okay, so conservatively, there are about 400 seats on that airplane. Mm -hmm. So potentially, there could be 400 people who were involved in that crash. Right. That, hmm, that really makes me think about how many people died in the crash, how many people survived, how many people decided to go to the crack in the earth. Were there people who didn't want to go to the crack in the earth that wanted to do something else? It really makes me wonder about the crash and the sequence of events afterwards. Yeah, we only really know the barest details that Savannah included in the tell. We do. For instance, we know that there were people that died in the crash, mm -hmm. but we don't necessarily know the specific story of what happened between the crash and them 
finding this place that they called planet Earth. And they said they don't need the know and they can live here. <laughs> and we only see the back half of the plane. Mm-hmm. They could have pulled a lost and the front half of the plane could be somewhere else. And there could be a different group of people that survived. That's a very good point. And not knowing that the other part of their group might not be that far away. I wonder how far they've explored. I'm so curious. The big question, I think, is not so much how far they've explored, but how far have they been able to explore and return to report? Yes. I feel like every time there's a leaving, the people leave. They just don't pull a returning to yeah. keep with the verbiage of the tribe. <laughs> One question that I have always had that I kind of struggle with with their choices is they live by a river. Mm -hmm. Now, if I lived by a river, I'm answering my own question in my head as I'm asking it. So I'm just going to... I say talk through it because we're an audio podcast yes. and not psychic. So if I lived by a river, I'd be like, hey, this river goes to either a large body of water or the ocean, an even larger body of water. So let's take our raft and... The other rafts that we have made and take everybody down towards the ocean. There's a higher chance of finding other people and there's a wider selection of resources. Mm -hmm. But as I was thinking that, answer my own question, they were told to wait here. Exactly. Someone will be back for them. And this is the second time that I have thought that Captain Walker screwed them over with that one line. Yeah, he kind of messed them up. Because why would they want to explore too, too far? Why go beyond? where you can get your resources that you need in order to stay put and never change. Yeah. That makes me a little bit sad for them. They had a good thing going. And I certainly think that they should stay together in the crack in the earth. But there is better out there for them. I kind of see it like when you go to the mall and you're with a friend and you're like, okay, I have to go find the bathroom or something. You hang out here by the Jamba Juice. So that way when I get back, I can find you. And then the friend will hang out there by the Jamba Juice. There might be a P.F. Chang's or a Banana Republic around the way, but they won't know about it because they were asked to stay in one spot. And they are sitting there by the Jamba Juice with the hope and the belief that you will come back for them, that you will return from the bathroom so that they can go somewhere else with you. True. And in this case, as far as this metaphor is concerned, you never come back from the bathroom because you get sidetracked by a pottery barn and then forget about your friend by the Jamba Juice. That analogy makes me sad because, because now <laughs> I, as the one who went to the bathroom, now I'm walking through Pottery Barn knowing that my friend is A, not walking through Pottery Barn with me, and B, sitting somewhere else waiting for my return. Those are both sad things. Another incident that could also be applicable to this thing, you tell your friend to wait by the Jamba Juice, you go to the bathroom, and then you get stuck in a stall without any toilet paper, and there's no one to help you. And so both Ooh. of you are trapped. Like in this situation, it's 1992 and no one has a cell phone. Right, <laughs> which is applicable. Like that's my mall world, because that's around the time that I went to the mall and yeah. did those things. So the answer to both those scenarios is that everybody goes to the bathroom. That seems like a great solution to this whole thing. Yeah. Now. But to expand the metaphor, I imagine this is a type of situation where you've already gone shopping and the mall security won't let you take products into the bathroom whether you purchased them or not. <laughs> I'm trying real hard. Yes, you are. To keep this metaphor going. Now, if I was the one left at the Jamba Juice, and I do this, I won't necessarily wait at the Jamba Juice. 
I will wait anywhere that I can see the Jamba Juice, that I can see the person who went to the bathroom return. So if there's a Yankee candle right next to Jamba Juice, first of all, horrible combination of smells. That's just <laughs> not great planning on the mall's part. And now I want to go to the Yankee Candle. I'm going to go to the Yankee Candle, but I'm going to keep my eye out towards the Jamba Juice to see if my friend has come back. And when they come back, I will walk out there and return to them and we will be reunited. I really have to wonder how many of these store names that we're saying are recognizable <laughs> to international <laughs> listeners. I just realized that. Like, when I made that TJ Maxx joke, no one knew what right. a TJ Maxx was. Right. TJ Maxx is very sad, sad place. They were like a discount Marshalls, and Marshalls is a discount JCPenney. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> Not helpful. No, Not no, no. Helpful. They're nothing alike. Okay, first of all, TJ Maxx and Marshalls are the same store. They are owned by the same company. They're the same store. Oh, okay. It's like Sam's Club and Walmart. It's the same store, just with slightly different concepts. Anyways, they are overstock stores. They take last season, they take too much ordered and all that kind of stuff. And they have their own stuff like that they order on purpose as well. Right. JCPenney's is not like that. They're an original seasonal fashion, in air quotes, department store. I gotcha. Yes. I'm following now. Right. Really doesn't help international listeners though. It doesn't. And I've <laughs> completely forgotten what we were talking about. Although before we, we're talking about the airplane, but before we leave talking about the airplane, I have something about the airplane. Okay. Screw loose. Okay. Climbing up on top of that tail. I call BS. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I actually wanted to get into the area surrounding the crashed plane because this is a set that was built. Well, yeah. They didn't actually find a crash plane and say, oh, hey, let's film around this thing. <laughs> this is something that they built. So according to our favorite resource, MadMaxMovies.com, this set was constructed at Cornell, south of Sydney, coincidentally under the flight path of the airport. This facade was constructed on the edge of Botany Bay in an area that has since heavily flooded. So the large tail section was obviously the largest part of the construction, the top and I'm using air quotes here, of the airplane was really fabricated sections that they just put in the sand to simulate a half-buried airplane. So the upper tail and the elevator fin that the kids step on later on in this minute are fully constructed, covered, and whatnot. But the back of the fin that Screwloose actually climbs up was not covered. It's completely exposed beams and things like that. And also behind the tail are guide wires that keep the thing from falling over. So because they didn't skin the back of the fin, they could put ladders and platforms and whatnot. So behind the scenes, Screwloose was very easily able to get up to the top of the fin. And I think the only way that that he could have climbed to the top of that fin in a fictional sense would be if he took a rock and dented hand and foot holes or if the wind came through the desert and just tore away the paint and got inside the panels and ripped them away. There's, okay. There's got to be more damage somewhere that would allow him to climb. I have two answers on how he did it. One, they live in the woods. He built a ladder and dragged it out there. Two, they have bits and pieces of the plane back at camp. Mm -hmm. It could be panels from the backside of that tail that had come loose, like you said, and they pulled them off, yeah. which would provide him a way to climb up. An exposed skeleton. Yes. That he could use as handholds. That works. I didn't get to mention my fun fact. What was your fun fact? That tail is about 63 feet tall. Wow. 
or 19.2 meters. Wow. Yes. Now, my original research, I was looking at the 767 because that was my best guess as to what it was. Mm -hmm. The 767, the tail is only 51 feet tall. Shorter. Much shorter. Huh. That makes me wonder if they actually built this tail full size to a 747 or if for safety reasons they did some sort of forced perspective. Knowing Miller and knowing his set design team, how go big or go home Grace Walker can be, I'm willing to bet they probably built it true to life and they just had a stuntman up there with Rod Zuanik holding on to his leg or something like that, keeping him from falling over. Yeah, I believe it. Maybe not a perfect 63 feet, exactly like the 747, but close enough. I mean, eyeballing it, yeah, I could see 63 feet. It's not quite as tall as Auntie's penthouse, though. No, that's a good example because they really did build her penthouse. So Mm -hmm. why wouldn't they really make the tail... 63 feet tall. Yeah. If the tail is the only part of the plane that you're going to build, you might as well go all out. Yes. In the screenplay, it does make note some things going through Max's head Mm -hmm. as he sees this plane. One of those things is that he had forgotten what humanity could do. He was amazed at its size and was like, oh yeah, I forgot about this. We used to do this kind of stuff. All the time. I think that's something that's going to happen to society really quick once an apocalypse hits of whatever sort and whenever that happens. I think really quickly we're going to forget the big, grand, crazy things that humanity can do once we lose the ability to do those. Hmm. Someday we're going to come upon an airplane half buried in the sand and go, oh yeah, that's pretty crazy. That thing is huge and it used to fly in the air. (laughs) It's sort of like how we have giant super tanker moving ships that hold thousands of shipping containers. And you see shipping containers all the time. You know how big they are. And then you think, oh my God, these ships are so big that they hold thousands of those things. And I've never seen one in real life, but I'm willing to bet I'd be just as awed by the scale of one of those ships if I were to see it in my daily life, just as much as Max is seeing the scale of this plane. I think it's a really good illustration of what you were just talking about, the fact that these things exist and we don't see them on a daily basis. And so when you actually do come face to face with them, there's an amazement that washes over you. (laughs) Yeah, most of us only ever see airplanes in the context of an airport, in the context of other airplanes. There's not a lot there for scale. Mm. There's lots of things around this particular airplane that you're looking at that just agree with the plane you're looking at. Nothing seems out of the ordinary. Everything's big. So put one out in the desert where it's all by itself and suddenly this thing is ginormous. Yeah. The next shot we get in this minute is all of the children standing silhouetted on top of the airplane. They are standing ready, looking to Max, expecting him to do something. And as we focus in on the tail section of the plane for our last big shot this minute, we see a couple of children out on that tail elevator section, the horizontal stabilizer, whatever it's called. And it looks like we've got Slake, Kusha, Tubba Tintai, Mr. Skyfish, and Savannah, which Tubba's gonna be one of the main waiting one children down the road once things get shaken up and we ended up going back to Bartertown. But this is the first instance that I think he really stands out. He steps out onto the wing with the others, and then I'm pretty sure he's the one that shouts, 
we's loaded and waiting, Captain. Okay. I loved the visual of everybody lined up on top of the plane with screw loose on top of the tail and the group of five or so out on the horizontal stabilizer Mm -hmm. wing thing. Yeah. First of all, it looked very similar to the painting that they did up mm-hmm. on the wall with everybody lined up. It also makes me wonder, now, Screw Loose has once again separated himself from the group. Mm-hmm. He once again has also used height to do so. And I wonder about that, if that says something about his psyche, that he wants to be up above everybody. He doesn't seem like the type to think he's better or elevated above everybody else. I think it's an observation thing. Makes sense. He doesn't want to be part of the group, but he wants to be able to observe the group. And then we've got this group of five who have separated themselves out. Are they some kind of leadership? I see Slake and Savannah definitely as leadership. I see Mr. Skyfish as their aerial expert. Tubba and Kusha, though. I have a suspicion that Tubba is Slake's second in command. Like, Slake is first tracker. He stood up in front of everyone, said it plain as day for us to hear, but I think Tubba might be his second in command. The second oldest, the second best hunter, what have you. Okay. And I wonder if Kusha has some sort of relationship with Slake. Do you think he's the father? He very well could be. Does the book ever say anything about Kusha? Kusha exists. She is eight months pregnant. So far, that's all they've said about her. They have not connected her and Slake. And actually, the book did connect Gecko and Anna Goanna. Mm-hmm. They are a pair. So the book is willing to make those distinctions, and they didn't make that distinction for Kusha and Slake. Yeah. So I don't think that connection exists. I like the idea because I want to know who the father is just out of curiosity. But then again, in this society, I don't think it matters. I don't think they really have a concept of parenthood. Yeah, I think they have a concept of motherhood, but not a parental ownership. No, they seem to follow the philosophy of it takes a village. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's less Kusha raising her child or Savannah raising her child than it is the children being raised. Right. It just happens. It's just done by the most responsible or maternal people in the group. Yeah, it seems to just happen. It just makes sense to me that Kusha would be somehow connected to Slake, and that's why she's out on the horizontal stabilizer. Yes. Really the only thing that kind of makes sense to me. Well, Unless she's some sort of second-in-command to Savannah. It could be kind of a default just by age. Yeah, the oldest female. Yeah. That makes sense. We are the oldest teenagers. We are the next group who might take a leaving. Yeah. So- It probably was that Savannah was the oldest female, and then when Savannah took her leaving, Kusha stepped up as the next oldest female. Mm -hmm, Perhaps. Okay, that makes a little bit more sense and doesn't force anybody into a relationship. We haven't really talked about the subject of sex and maturity among the group. Obviously, we know it's happening. There are at least two children and one pregnant woman. It's happening. But from who has been presented to us, there is only one male who is old enough by our society standards to be fathering children. I think we should treat this situation like most public schools and communities treat all teenage sexual circumstances and just ignore it and hope it goes away. Which is fine because it's actually never an issue Mm -hmm. in the movie. There's no point to Kusha being pregnant. There's no point to 
Finn McCoo being Savannah's son. It's just flavor text. It is. It's something fascinating. I think it says a lot about community and society and adults and children and maturing and all that kind of stuff, but it makes absolutely no difference to the story. So it's perfectly fine just ignoring it. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of minute 61. We are going to put a pin in this scene. We have just been alerted that the waiting ones are loaded and ready, but... We're going to see on Wednesday, Max just doesn't feel like flying today. So he's going to turn his back and walk away, just bumming everybody out and totally killing the mood, just harshing everyone's buzz. But as much of a letdown as that's going to be, we still hope that you come back and join us on Wednesday's Minute. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Public storefront by clicking the store link join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Minute 61 of Beyond Thunderdome. We'll see you next time. Oh!